Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Okay, so your most recent book, Diplomats and Admirable, Admirables, I keep saying that, Admirals, From Failed Negotiations and Tragic Misjudgment to Powerful Leaders and Heroic Deeds, The Untold Story of the Pacific War, War from Pearl Harbor to Midway. That's a mouthful for starters. <laughs> and it's a lot of, it's a lot of material to, to cover. What got you interested in this specific era and why this book now? Well, uh, way back when I, I was a ROTC in college, I served on a destroyer for most of the three years that I was in the Navy, uh, all in the Pacific. And it became clear to me that uh, the, the full appreciation of the Navy's contribution to the war has been uh, undervalued, underappreciated. And so, and specifically, the Battle of Midway was a turning point, and it it really isn't recognized. It's recognized in the Navy, but not generally in American society. And every year, when D-Day comes, June 6, 1944, uh, while I have no problem with the sacrifices of that were made, the victory that was achieved on Normandy, uh, I do say to people, you're two years and two days late. The real turning point was June 4th, 1942 at Midway. This was when the war might have gone either way. And uh, it was the first time that uh, we had achieved any of the Allied forces had achieved any a serious victory. Uh, we had been in the war starting December 7th, 1941, December 8th, Roosevelt went to Congress. Congress declared war. For eight months, we had no way of landing any troops anywhere in the Atlantic or in the Pacific. And it was entirely a Navy war. It was a Navy war in the Pacific fighting U-boats. It was a Navy war in the, in the Atlantic fighting U-boats. It was a Navy war in the Pacific with the carriers Halsey made raids on Japanese-held islands, the Doolittle Raid on Tokyo, the Battle of Coral Sea, and the Battle of Midway. And the Battle of Midway paved the way for the landings on Guadalcanal in August of that year. So for eight months, it was entirely a Navy war. And even at Guadalcanal, while the Navy uh, was offshore, the Marines were fighting valiantly. People know about the Marines on Guadalcanal. I take nothing from them for their value, valor and their success. But while that was going on, there were seven major naval battles off Guadalcanal because we had to keep our troops supplied and the Japanese were trying to keep their troops supplied. So it was a battle of uh, competing uh, for supplies, and we sank 24 Japanese ships, including two battleships. They sank 24 of our ships, including two aircraft carriers. And finally, in January of 1943, they gave up and pulled out of Guadalcanal. So that's the real background mm -hmm. that I'd like to refer to in the Pacific War. 
yeah. and in the entire war leading up to January of 1943. Yeah, it, it's it's always so hard to speak of history because when you do history, you're 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 talking about a moment in time or moments maybe, um, and there's all this before it and all that comes after, and so it's it's always feels like you're trying to uh, minimize one thing to emphasize something else, and so it's it's a very a very tall tall task. Um, I try before, to be fair back and forth. Exactly, exactly. Before we get to Midway, though, let's talk about Pearl Harbor for a second. How close was the war to being ended at Pearl Harbor? And I say ended, the Navy being put to where um, they, you know, you know, beyond repair, if you will. Well, I'd like when you say how close were we to being the war ending, I, 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 could I rephrase that and say, how close were we to avoiding the war? And through the, the final six months of 1941, the, the Japanese had moved into the southern part of Indochina. Uh, Roosevelt said, you know, this is just one step too far that they've taken. He planned a, a partial asset freeze uh, on the Japanese to force them into negotiation because they were importing uh, almost all of their oil and no, almost all of that came from the United States. The idea was to have a negotiation and try to get them to stop and perhaps even pull out of the of southern Indochina. But the military, our military leaders, had already said, our major threat is Hitler. Whatever you do, don't get involved in a war with Japan. Roosevelt went to the Nova Scotia uh, with our meeting Churchill on our ships of our respective navies. Uh, Assistant Secretary of State Dean Acheson imposed a total freeze on assets, which meant that Japanese oil was cut off completely and they were in a crisis. And the war elements of Japan wanted to have a war immediately to secure oil from uh, the Dutch East Indies. The other parts of the Japanese government said, no, we can negotiate our way out of this. The Prime Minister of Japan, Kanoe, wanted a one-on-one -on -one summit meeting with Roosevelt. This was opposed by Cordell Hull, the Secretary of State, Henry Stimson, Secretary of War, and behind Cordell Hall was his Far East advisor, Stanley Hornbeck, who in turn was advised by Alger Hiss, who turned out to be a spy. If your sentiments were for communism and Russia, the best thing you could do was to have a war between Japan and the United States so that Russia could come in and pick up the pieces. So the idea of a summit was torpedoed, <clears throat> it moved along, Konoe was forced out of office, Tojo came in, and they became convinced that they had to avoid a war. We were negotiating through the end of 1941. Finally, there was an agreement in November that the Japanese would withdraw from Indochina in exchange for a resumption of oil. Cordell Hall sent a draft agreement around 
to the British, the Dutch, and the Chinese. What do you think of this deal? Well, British were a little bit doubtful because a one-on-one -on -one deal with between Japan and the United States might leave them exposed at Singapore, but they'd be willing to go along with it. The Dutch didn't care that much. The Chinese were adamantly opposed. Chiang Kai-shek came in and said, you cannot possibly have an agreement with Japan. you got to be in on this war supporting us. And he sent this in. It's documented in my book, Diplomats and Admirals, uh, Foreign Relations of the United States Diplomatic Papers. It's, there's a footnote that quotes Chiang Kai-shek saying just exactly what I essentially repeated. And so Cordell Hall couldn't tolerate a disagreement with our so-called allies. He substituted a separate agreement, which in, in fact was a long-term plan to be achieved over two, three, five years, which provided for Japan to withdraw from all of Indochina, all of China, and revoke the tripartite pact and no mention of any resumption of oil shipments. This went back to Japan. Japanese government saw this and they said, this, this is absurd. This is nothing to do with the discussions that have been going on for several months. And so they rejected that. And we had Pearl Harbor two weeks later. So how do you go about evaluating what's going on here because there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of potential for what could have happened. Um, and then there's the question of motivation of how motivated were the parties to really see things through. So do you think that Pearl Harbor could have really been prevented or um, is it unknown what would have happened if things would have played out, you know, if, if, if we could have come to a deal? Well, it certainly could have been prevented. It didn't have to happen. If we'd have had that agreement with Japan, uh, the carrier force, the six carriers that were already underway, were would have been ordered to come back to Japan. And the invasions over Southeast Asia uh, would have been called back also. So when it happens, is this a surprise to the U.S. government, you believe, or not? Did it give rise to what? Was it a surprise to Roosevelt when Pearl Harbor happened? Well, Roosevelt saw this as obviously war. He asked Congress to declare war. And from that point on, there was a focus on waging war. Nobody went back and asked what went on before this. Uh, the Admiral and the General on Pearl Harbor were found to be on fault. You know, no, somebody had to take the blame, and they took the blame. And the admiral thought it was was unjustified. There were a lot of top secret messages he should have seen that he never saw. Uh, it it uh, he was really a fall guy, but and he fought this for the rest of his life. Uh, but nevertheless, the focus was all on the war. Nobody went back and examined what occurred prior to that. A lot of documents were classified for 75 years, and they've only in the last few years have been available. And those are the documents that I 
focused on to write my book. Uh, Foreign Relations of the United States Diplomatic Papers. It's all under Office of the Historian by year, by region, volume, chapter, and documents. It's all on the internet now. Mm. So I've heard um, at Pearl Harbor that the U.S. was lucky, I believe, because we had a couple ships that were out of the, of the harbor that day somewhere else. And um, one of the ships gets out. Otherwise, if it sinks, it blocks access to the main ocean. Was it really that close for the U.S.? Could it have been um, more disastrous if things, you know, a few ships were here, a few ships were moved or, or whatever? Well, How close was it? I, I think what you're referring to are the, the two aircraft carriers that were in the region. These were the Lexington and the Enterprise. Um they had been delivering uh, planes on Midway and on Wake Island. And they were dispatched by Admiral Kimmel just before the uh, Pearl Harbor, you know, a week or so before the Pearl Harbor attack. They were on their way back. And in fact, Enterprise was supposed to be in the harbor on the Sunday morning. They were delayed by some logistical problem with one of their escorting ships. Uh, so they were a, a day late. And uh, uh, Sunday morning, they were, you know, 200 miles offshore, Pearl Harbor. So fortunately, they were not in the harbor when the attack occurred. Uh, Lexington was about a day steaming away. So both of those those carriers were, were uh, not part of the attack. And fortunately, they were available to counterattack uh, once we were in the war. And from the Japanese perspective, was there a significant significance to the date that they selected, or is it just how it unfolded once they decided to move forward with the operation? Well, they had a date picked out, and it affected, they were affected by maybe considerations like you know, phases of the moon, would there be moonlight, would there be sun, when would sunrise occur, all that sort of thing. Uh, I don't think there was anything that was really that specific other than some minor considerations. But they did have a showdown They with the between the, the pro-war elements and the, uh, you might say, avoid war elements in the Japanese government. And the pro-war elements were saying, look, the United States is rearming. They're getting stronger. We are, with this oil embargo, we are getting weaker. And they said to the diplomatic parts of the government, okay, let's have a deadline. November 30th is the deadline. We give you guys a month to achieve a, a deadline, a, a breakthrough. And after that, if you haven't achieved it, we go to war. So November 30th came and went. And the pro-war element said, okay, you haven't done this. We got this crazy uh, message from the Americans, which is just, a, in effect, a, an invitation to war. Uh, and so it's war. And so they had the day picked out and the carriers just, uh, attacked on schedule. Okay. So 
Pearl Harbor happens. You said that Midway is something that needs to be discussed from the relevance of keeping us in the war. Walk us through at a high level from Pearl Harbor to maybe the week before Midway. What What is going on on the U.S. side? How do we determine that they're going to attack at Midway? Um, and I believe there, there's like, there's what, one or two losses that we have in there as well before that too, right? Okay. Uh, fortunately for the U.S., we had the Japanese code broken. When you say broken, it, it comes in incremental parts. Some days you can might decode 10% of a message or 20% or 40%, 50%. Uh, we were getting increasing information by decoding their messages. Um, so there was an indication even before Coral Sea in May of, of 42 that a big attack was coming in the Central Pacific. Who got more and more information? They they even sent a, a decoy message saying, uh, you know, we're there's a uh, a warp a, a water problem on Midway. We're going to be short of water, and then the Japanese picked that up and and sent a message saying uh, war problem on, and this decoded uh, uh, symbol for for Midway. So Nimitz, uh, Admiral Nimitz knew then that it was going to be Midway. He had a very smart group of decoding guys, a uh, group in, on Pearl Harbor, and they were decoding these message a week before the planned attack on Midway, which would have been the 27th of May. <clears throat> the decoding group was able to get the decode the complete battle plan that of the Japanese advance for Midway. They were going to come in on the 4th of June. They were going to be on course 135. They were going to come in at first light, uh, launch half their planes for to attack Midway itself, to attack the shore facilities there. And the other half of their planes would be ready to repel any attack that we made. Nimitz took this information and planned a concentration of force. He wanted, he flew in every plane he could possibly get his hands on to the island of Midway. And they would be part of the course that would, uh, the group that would fly up the reverse of the Japanese course and meet the, the Japanese carriers about 140 miles from Midway. The, our carriers, our three carriers, Enterprise, Hornet, and Yorktown, were going to be 200 miles directly north of Midway at 0600 on the 4th of June. And they would fly southwest, and there would be a concentration of force over the Japanese fleet, which would hit them about 710, 715 in the morning. Well, everybody doing a classic concentration of force. And this was intended to win a victory within about an hour or an hour and a half after 0715. What happened was that our carriers were out of position. They were 60, 65 miles away, which meant that the planes were beyond their operating range. 
so they could not participate in the attack on the Japanese carriers. The Midway planes went in by themselves. This was a relatively small force. The Japanese Zero fighters uh, shot them down. Almost all of them were shot down. And there wasn't a single scratch on a Japanese uh, ship. So after that, uh, it was a scramble. So what are our carriers going to do? Uh, Spruance was detached with two carriers, Enterprise and Hornet. He planned a new uh, uh, inter uh, interception point. And those planes flew. The Hornet planes flew with the... They, they got to the interception point. There were no Japanese ships there. So what do they do? The Hornet planes flew in the wrong direction. The Enterprise Air Group commander did a brilliant job of figuring out what the Japanese plane uh, carriers might have done. He reversed the Jap up the Japanese course uh, and then started a search and picked up a, 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 below him a Japanese destroyer was heading uh, in a northeastern course. He said, well, let's follow that. He had 32 dive bombers behind him, and they found the Japanese carriers. Two squadrons of dive bombers. One took one carrier. Uh, the other squadron took the other carrier, and they destroyed them both. And meanwhile, the Yorktown planes, which had been late to, to launch, found a third Japanese carrier and destroyed that. Three Japanese carriers were destroyed within five minutes. Uh, there was one carrier left uh, of the four Japanese carriers that had attacked, and the Enterprise pilots found that later in the afternoon, but unfortunately not before planes from that carrier uh, uh, inflicted serious damage on Yorktown which led to its uh, eventual sinking. But uh, so at the end of the day, June 4th, 1942, uh, our carrier pilots had sunk four Japanese carriers, one of the great victories in the history of the Navy. But bear in mind, it was a scramble at the end. It was a little bit like, uh, you know, what do we do? We got to find this. It was If you watch football, it was like Patrick Mahomes you know, 15 uh, yards behind the line of scrimmage, dodging linebackers, and he throws a Hail Mary into the end zone. That's how we won the Battle of Midway. So I want to come back to the to the win, the, the scramble in a second. Um, the Japanese attack, was their attack set up with the presumption that the Americans didn't know? So in other words, um, from their perspective, was this, the best way to attack under all scenarios, or was it the Americans don't know, so we can we have the advantage to attack this way? They had no idea that we had broken their code. Uh, they thought that uh, they would launch this attack. Uh, the, the half their planes from the carriers would launch their attack, take the Americans by surprise, destroy their shore facilities, and at that point. Uh, we would be alerted to the attack. Our carrier, they planned our carriers would then steam up from Midway, uh, towards Midway from Pearl Harbor. And then the, there would be a showdown battle and they would uh, destroy the American carriers. That's what they expected. 
they their problem was they assumed that the Americans would follow what what they thought would be the logical action for the Americans to take. They didn't really think that we might be uh, have other things other uh, in mind, uh, other information. Uh, they just were were oblivious to other possibilities. And that was a big mistake they made. How close, you, you said it was a Hail Mary that we got. How close was it to losing Midway? And with all of the parties present, if we lose, does that mean, are you saying that multiple U.S. carriers would have been sank or they just would have had to retreat? What would have what would a loss look like? If if the enterprise pilots, the enterprise uh, two squadrons, they were running low on fuel. They were about ready to turn back. Some of those planes never did make it back because they ran out of fuel. McCluskey, the air group commander, said, "We gotta find these people. We'll take. We'll follow this destroyer. If that doesn't pay off." We, we got to go back because we're all going to ditch in the ocean. It was that close. If they hadn't seen that destroyer, it, they would have turned around and gone back. And even if the Yorktown planes had come in and destroyed one carrier, that would have left three others already, uh, you know, full fuel, gas, uh, armaments, they would have launched a huge attack against our three carriers, and there's a good chance they would have sunk them all. So is that because um, you mentioned that they're low on fuel, the U.S. carriers. How are the Japanese ships better fueled to pursue them? Is it because they have a quicker, they have a, a refuel spot that's closer? How can they continue to pursue uh, with with fuel? Well, um, in the beginning, when when the Enterprise planes took off, they were at a circle. There were the long delays on our on our flight decks, so they they used up a lot of fuel before they even were were on their on their search course, and then they went down to what they thought was the interception point. The Japanese carriers weren't there. Uh, they changed course. All of this consumed a huge amount of fuel. And so uh, they didn't have a lot left. They had barely enough to get back to their to their carriers at that point. Uh, the, the the Hornet planes, who never found any carriers, they, they lost a lot of planes into the water, uh, running out of fuel, uh, doing their search uh, pattern, which was really hopeless because they had gone in the wrong direction. Um, the Japanese, by this time, their scouts had picked up the American carriers. They knew where those carriers were, and their planes were gassed and uh, uh, loaded with torpedoes and, and uh, bombs, and they were all ready to go. They were not going to have a fuel problem. Okay, I, I got you now. Um, so it's more the planes fuel problem than, than the actual ship themselves. Yeah. Okay. And so what, if anything, could the Japanese have done in the battle midway to prevent the catastrophic defeat that they had? 
Well, they they one big thing apart from their tactics, whether that was a great idea or not. They their search was was undermanned. They sent out seven planes, uh, and there was, was a delay uh, in one of the important scouts. But they they sent out just seven. Uh, they should have, if if you if you assume that they'd send ten percent of their planes out on scouting, that meant that ten percent would have been about twenty two or twenty three airplanes to be used for scouting. Uh, they should have done that. They probably could have found our carriers earlier, and that could have made a big difference in what they did. I think it's hard for us to, unless you go out in the ocean a lot, maybe, to grapple with how hard it is to find stuff on the ocean. <laughs> you know, um, and so you hear this, you go, man, how could they not find it? But how... When, they're, when these planes are in the air, how many times is it that they're going out um, and they're not finding anything? Because from the layman perspective, you go, oh, they should be able to, a plane goes out, a plane can see a long way, we should be able to find something. But I suspect those planes, a lot of times, whether it's this battle or other battles, struggled to find the ships that they were looking for. No question about it. You know, they're, they're out there and they're if, if, you know, navigation is a problem, if there's a mistake in navigation, they're looking at open ocean. Uh, after battles, uh, I'm thinking of Coral Sea, which is also described, described in Diplomats and Admirals. Uh, there were uh, planes were, were trying to figure out uh, where they were, and then also trying to... to figure out where the carriers were because the carriers are moving all the time. There's an expected uh, approach, a course in speed that the, they, they expect the carriers will maintain and they're going to head their way, head back to that point, you know, after two, three, four hours. But things can change. The carriers might not be there. And so, uh, you know, if the carriers are under attack, then they can't maintain that course and speed. And in some case, in in the case of at Midway, there was really a miscalculation on the the speed at which the carriers would advance in a given direction. Uh, so planes were going back to uh, a spot where the carriers were, and the carriers were not there. So uh, they had to improvise. Maybe they'd go end up back the course that the carriers were on and hope that they found them. Uh, you know, planes were lost. Nobody really knows in great detail what what the story was on each individual plane that went down in the ocean. Yeah, I've, I believe, and I'm curious your perspective, one of the fascinations... Um, with World War II, the naval battles especially, is on some level, I wonder if we all believe that we won't see that again. Now, hopefully we won't see it again, obviously. But there's a practical element to the things that you're describing that today, if Midway were to happen, there'd be drone, there'd be a mass of drones flying out, planes, satellites, 
something you know, like D-Day or Pearl Harbor. It, it, it's not saying it's impossible, but all the things that would have to go right today to have these type of battles or this type of warfare is pretty substantial. And so it, it seems like there's this might have been, I don't want to say great from the standpoint of it was good because war is not good, but these great battles that that, that happened um there's a very small era of history in which everything aligned from a technology standpoint for them to happen but that era probably is is gone for the most part well to i guess what you're uh getting to is how do how do the events there that occurred in 1942 translate into what we're facing today and you know, clearly the the armaments are all different. Uh, the speeds, the distances are all different. Uh, I would be interested in having access to some of the highly confidential battle plans that I'm sure exist in the Western Pacific today, vis-a-vis mm. <laughs> uh, -vis the Chinese, vis-a-vis perhaps even other actors in that area, North Korea, what have you. Mm -hmm. uh, we have allies, Australia, the Philippines, Japan. Uh, what are they all going to do? We are in the process of making submarine available to North Korea. Uh, three submarines are destined to go to Australia. Submarines are clearly very important. Um, the, the the carriers, uh, we all have questions about the carriers. Uh, the Navy says we can defend the carriers. Uh, it's going to be a very dicey time in the, in the event of a war out there. Uh, it's interesting to notice that the Japanese are, or the, the Chinese are building carriers. They've got two, I think, obsolete carriers by our standards, but they're building one that's uh, so apparently state-of-the-art. So they're interested in carriers, just as we're interested in carriers. How it's all going to play out is uh, subject to a very intense investigation right now uh, that we're, we as civilians are not privy to. Yeah. Yeah, if, if they want to send those battle plans, uh, Dale's the expert. He'd like to look at them, but if you send them to Dale, go ahead and... Go ahead and send them to me too. I'd I'd like to take a look. I'm not sure I would be able to make heads or tails of most of it, but I would be interested. Um, okay, so Midway happens. I've heard historians say that with Normandy, uh, D-Day. Once it happened, not that the European theater was over, obviously, but basically that victory sealed the fate of the Germans. It would take a Herculean effort to um, stop the Allies at that point. After Midway, was it the same feel? Looking back, maybe at the time they didn't know, but looking back, is your thesis now that once Midway happens, it's inevitable that Japan will lose? Well, I think that was the end of their offense. Uh, I mean, they, they landed at Guadalcanal. After that, we opposed... And then we landed in Guadalcanal. So they made some moves, uh, but uh, as far as any 
big offensive campaign as far as any uh, substantial position to negotiate a a position for themselves in the Western Pacific. That was pretty much over. And we were, there was going to be a lot of fighting. A lot of people are going to be killed. Uh, a lot of ships are going to be sunk. But uh, we, the, 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 the momentum was on our side after Midway. You know, going back to what you were saying, translating from the time in 1941 and 42 to the present, one thing that that we're left with, and especially with the the uh, declassification of documents after 75 years, uh, we see what people did then in 19 towards the end of 1941, and we're left with the thought that when it comes to geopolitics and threats of war, you need very, very smart people. I have made presentations before groups, uh, podcasts, something like this. A lot of Navy groups and, and foreign relations groups in person. And the in-person presentations at the end, I say, how many people here think that the United States conduct of foreign relations since the end of World War II has been brilliant? And not a single hand goes up. You know, we need to have smart, smart people handling difficult situations. And something to see in retrospect, it's something else to see in the present time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not easy. It's not easy, and it seems that it's not easy because we're trying. You know, I always make this. I try to make this analogy where you have people who try to bet on sporting events: football, basketball, baseball, and the rules are defined in those games. Um, the players you can see who's healthy, who's the weather, you know, the weather, the stats of all the players, and you still can't regularly bet on sports and win. It's, I mean, there might be three people in the world who can do it, but humans cannot do that. Um, that's why I have big hotels in Vegas with geopolitics. None of those things are true. There are no rules. The rules are whatever the nations want to make them and they can disregard them at will. On top of that, the amount of players come and go, um, people rise up, they fall down. It seems that when you talk about these things, um, we need smart people. You do need smart people, but you also need a bit of humility that, it's really hard to predict how someone will react, how they will respond, uh, what they're going to do. Um, without strategic empathy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I'm, I'm a little concerned from my standpoint that we've kind of, we kind of live in this world to where we think we can predict, you know, second and third level, um, ramifications on stuff and you know sometimes you can sometimes you can't when we look back at history are we flattening it out a little bit um not to tell the story so that we can kind of understand it but are we maybe in danger of looking back and saying oh they should have been able to figure this out um or 
they should have known this response would have caused this reaction. Um, because in modern the modern world, it seems it's not entirely clear what China is going to do with Taiwan. A lot of people think they're going to invade. A lot of people don't. No one, I mean, maybe some U.S. intelligence officer is listening to Xi Jinping's um, in her conversations. But, but practically speaking, a lot of us are just guessing on what we think is going to happen. Um, when, we, when you look back, how much clarity is there in these very complex topics and subjects of what was happening versus a lot of it, how much of it was guessing and trying to guess right? Well, I think that there are complexities that were very difficult for anybody to figure out. But at the same time, there were things that should have been known. Mm. We should have been able to avoid that war with Japan. There, were, there, was, there was information that was available that was ignored. The Japanese were sending messages into their diplomats in Washington in the last several months of 1941, saying, we've got to have a got to have an arrangement. We've got to solve this problem with the United States. We do not want a war. And we were able to decrypt that. And it was largely ignored. Uh, these are these are just flaws, terrible flaws in our in our diplomatic operation. Um, then you get into areas of, of misunderstanding. Uh, who are these people that we're dealing with? You take it to the, the current situation. What, what is evolving right now between Putin and, and uh, the Wagner group, whatever? Who are we dealing with? What are they likely to do? What are they, what are their, what is their potential? People have been surprised just in the last week about what's happened. Should they have known more? Maybe. Uh, it's it's difficult, but this is what this is what we're faced with. This is what we're we're supposed to have good people uh, dealing with. I just hope we do. Hmm. What if you could go back to this period from Pearl Harbor or before Pearl Harbor um, to Midway in the era of the book, and you could speak with one of the people and ask them anything, and they're going to answer honestly. Who would you speak to and what would you ask them? I would ask Cordell Hull, why didn't you read these messages and do a lot better with the information you have? And why were you listening to poor advisors uh, like Stanley Hornbeck and Alger Hiss, instead of our very capable ambassador to Japan, Joseph Gru, who was sending a whole series of con of messages, one after the other, uh, and one of them being, do not assume that your freezing of uh, Japanese assets and cutting off oil will not force them to take drastic measure, measures. There's one that I quote in Diplomatic uh, and Admirals. Uh, their moves could come with sudden and dramatic power. And that, of course, is what happened at Pearl Harbor. 
what is aside from that question right there that you mentioned, but give me maybe one thing that you looked into that you found something for, but you wish you could find more information about, but the record's not there, destroyed, lost, et cetera. Maybe an, un, un, an unanswered question in your research. An unanswered question. Why, why were we so obtuse about the Japanese and from their point of view, why couldn't they understand that if they lost, if they launched a war on the United States, they were ultimately going to lose. There, there was a group called, that I uh, recite in, in detail, the Total War Research Institute, which was a group of Japanese mid-level, uh, very bright, highly trained people in, in different departments of the Japanese government. 30 people, only two uh, from the army, two from the navy, the rest were all civilians. They analyzed over several months the capabilities that the Japanese had to wage a war. They analyzed their resources, their manufacturing capabilities, their existing uh, army, their existing navy, and they came to the conclusion there's no way that we, the Japanese could win a war against the United States. They made a presentation to the Japanese government, the 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 ministers of the of the government. It was not a one-hour meeting. They spent two days going through all their methods of data collection, analysis. They made their complete comprehensive presentation and their just their conclusion that they could not win a war against the United States was irrefutable. But nevertheless, uh, the pro-war elements were saying, we are not going to be strangled by this oil embargo. And if we have to be fight and die, we will. And that was a part of the Japanese mentality that, that Ambassador Gru warned against, but just wasn't understood in Washington. We're going to link to the book in the show notes um, so people can go check that out. Any other projects that you're working on or future books that we can look forward to? Well, I'm I'm thinking about a sequel to Diplomats and Admirals. I even have a title, Pacific Blue and Gold. And this is going to uh, summarize quickly the, the first six months of the war, uh, what I did in and uh, going through Coral Sea and Midway, but then go on from there and analyze the naval battles, the, the seven naval battles off Guadalcanal, which were ferocious battles. Uh, ships sunk, uh, men killed. Uh, it's, it's, it's unappreciated for the most part what the Navy did. Okay, well, hopefully... Uh, we can get you back on when that book comes out. Thank you so much for your time today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much, Ryan.